Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're going beyond soda bread and shepherd's pie to learn about the new Irish cooking with chef J.P. McMahon. 
We discussed the joys of frying with animal fat, the best way to cook any vegetable, and McMahon's fight against overcooked meat. I find turning down the lights and just serving it medium rare and just making sure people can't see the colour. Because I generally find probably about 70% of the people will, will, if you blindfold them, they would admit to it being nicer, rare or medium rare than it would be well. But it's just, I think it's, it's your eyes that are tricking you. Also coming up, Dan Pashman and I explore the art and science of ice cubes and we make a crispy pasta from Puglia. But first, it's my interview with Burkhardt Bilger about his article, Can Babies Learn to Love Vegetables? Burkhardt, welcome to Milk Street. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, your article in The New Yorker, Can Babies Learn to Love Vegetables, is really about something else as well, which is to figure out what babies want. So right. what have we done as a culture to research the concept of what, let's say, a one- or two-year-old really wants to eat? I mean, there's been research at every level, I think. You know, there's been studies of you know, how babies react to sugar, for instance. And that's shown that babies want uh, kind of insane concentrations of sugar. And then there have been studies that have looked at what's the difference between what a baby wants when a mother will eat certain vegetables during pregnancy or during nursing and babies who don't have that in their, their mother's diet. And they did it with Irish babies. There's a famous study where mothers who ate garlic mashed potatoes when they were pregnant. And like nine years later, they tested these children of mothers who hadn't done that and mothers who had, and the children from mothers who had eaten garlic mashed potatoes were more likely to like the taste of garlic because, um, you know, garlic isn't usually that prevalent in the, in the Irish diet, so you could kind of control for that a bit. So, yeah, that's been shown very clearly. Now, another point you make is that what a baby likes or doesn't like the first time you offer them something isn't necessarily determinative of what they may like if you keep on offering it to them. Could you explain that? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's an interesting passage in a baby's life. Early on, when they're up to two years old, they'll, you know, sometimes kind of shake their head if they're offered something, but if you give it to them again, they'll just go ahead and eat it. And then later on, there's this period from, say, two to four, where in evolutionary terms, they would have been crawling around in whatever, the savanna environment or the jungle, and they're putting things in their mouth. And it kind of makes evolutionary sense to, to have a lot of more discriminating function when it comes to food. And at that age, they tend to spit things out and, and become much more picky about what they eat. But then they kind of come back around to being more open-minded as you go. And I think the mistake that study after study has shown is that parents, when they're feeding kids, just aren't persistent enough that a kid will, will, you know, will spit out the tomato you give them or spit out the carrot that you give them. And after the third or fourth time or fifth time, you're like, okay, well, my kid just doesn't like tomatoes or doesn't like carrots. And the truth is that, you know, these famous studies at Penn State by Leanne Birch, she was a wonderful child psychologist and child nutrition expert. And she found that it took 10 to 12 exposures on average for kids to learn to like a new substance. So you went to an African market in Portland, Maine, and discovered that the kids were eating garlicky things that my kids would never eat. Uh, but that's because they were raised with homemade baby foods that were not bought in the supermarket. Yeah. If you want the best possible diet for your kid, it's going to be 
a question of making it yourself, giving it to them on a consistent basis, making sure it's varied. I think that's all true. Of course, that hits against the wall of a lot of people don't have time for that kind of home cooking. Right. And, you know, the, this large-scale study that Gerber funds every few years, and this may sound suspect, but I think it's been vetted pretty well, has found that, you know, the American diet is so bad and the kind of food that often gets given to kids is so bad on average. You know, like a quarter of kids don't get vegetables on any given day. And, and the most common vegetable they eat is French fries. So that compared to that, kids raised on commercial baby food on average actually get a healthier diet than the average huh. American kid who doesn't get commercial baby food. So we're in this kind of, we're in such a bad spot nutritionally that, you know, uh, absolutely making your own food for your babies is the best thing you can do. But if you don't have time, right. you know, it, it, commercial baby food may not be such a bad alternative. So if you're like most parents, you don't have a lot of extra time and you're not cooking from scratch to feed them, uh, what's your advice? Well, I think the, the, the ideal thing, there's also this kind of new movement which seems to have had a lot of success of self-weaning where you're basically giving kids more whole foods to gnaw on and, and kind of more adult foods that you kind of mash up on their plate that come from your plate. I think there's a lot of that that, hmm. that can be really successful if you – our parent, you know, rather than making bespoke baby foods with your baby bullet blender, you know, in a lot of ways, the ideal thing to do is to make sure you're eating a healthy diet yourself and eating home foods as much as possible and then just giving your kids some of that and then use baby food, commercial baby food, as a supplement. So is there a point of no return in a kid's life where they've established their taste preferences? Is it game over or is there any way back? No, I don't think it's game over at all. I mean, I keep thinking about the craft brewing revolution in this country where we went from, as a country, drinking Bud and, and Miller Lite and then suddenly, 20 years later, you know, the, the most popular beers around are IPAs, which are high, high hops content, very bitter beers. And, you know, these are all people who started drinking those things when they are in their 20s probably, you know, started to shift over in, into IPAs, and they learned to love those things. So I think that plasticity in our tastes is, is, is there and, and, and continues for the rest of our lives, basically. You also mentioned, you know, that parents like to get their kids all wound up in the kind of diets they like, chia seeds, it's this and the other thing, carob. Is any of that stuff potentially harmful or that's just silly? I don't know if any given ingredient in those hip new baby foods I've seen is dangerous. I do think there is this weird thing that's happened throughout the history of baby food where whatever anxieties we have about food or ever any hopes for our own diets, we then impose on them. And so you, you know, you have in the early 19th century when there's this idea about purity in baby food, they're only giving them white substances, milk and, and white gruel. And then in the 50s when we're enamored with industrialization and, and high tech, we're suddenly giving them all canned foods. And then in the 70s, we decide, oh, no, it all has to be homemade. And, you know, and some of those are some of those trends are better than others. But in every era, we're crystallizing whatever the food trends are and then imposing them on these children. In all of this research, what really stood out to you as being incredible, different, surprising, et cetera? I mean, one of the things that that I had not expected was that so much of the culture of commercial baby food comes out of the military. Hmm. You know, the kind of canning technology or, or freeze-drying technology or the new pouches that are everywhere. Those incredibly expensive yogurt pouches, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, those came out of field rations, you know. And hmm. one of the things I had when I was at the combat feeding unit was this 
food that's made for spy plane pilots. And those guys have to be in, in helmets that are completely airtight. And so they, they can't really eat with a fork and knife. So the only way they can eat is to take a pouch of this basically baby food for adults, stick the nozzle in the equivalent of a cigarette lighter socket on a dashboard. It heats up the pouch and then they stick it in their helmet and they squeeze the stuff into their helmets. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. But and then they gave me some to taste and I was expecting something like plumpy nuts, something that would be this most basic nutritious gruel. And in fact, it wasn't. I mean, they had really, they had, you know, uh, macaroni and cheese with truffle oil and they had tortilla soup. And talking to those people at the lab, they said, look, this isn't us just having fun with food. This is, I guess we've always known this, but it's reinforced the, the thought that food is psychological and it's comfort. You need something that, that evokes these sense memories so that that dimension of food, that it's even present in things like combat food and, and baby food was really surprising and, and, and kind of gratifying to me. Burkhardt, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. Good to be here. That was Burkhardt Bilger. His article for The New Yorker is called Can Babies Learn to Love Vegetables? Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Chris, before we get going with the calls, I have a personal question myself. About you? No. Oh, about me. Oh. About you. Okay, go ahead. So, typical evening, done at work, done at Milk Street, going home, not going out. What happens when you get home? Uh, there are two young kids there uh, waiting for me at the door. They have to have dinner. And you make it? Sometimes I make it. Sometimes my wife makes it. I rarely eat much dinner because at the kitchen at Milk Street all day, I'm just eating constantly, which means you I have... You and the wife don't sit down and dine? Oh, no. If you have but a one and a three... But how about a cocktail? We don't have time to sit down and have cocktails. Oh, dear. This is very no, sad. No, no, no. It's bath, pajamas, playtime, bed... And then I have half an hour before I completely collapse, which might be a cocktail time once in a while. Okay, okay. And what do you do? What do I do? Well, I don't go to an office. My home oh. is my office. There you go. So I could work all day long every day. So I've been trying to work on that because that's not healthy. And you actually get to cook dinner. I do. Yeah. I do every night. At 6.30, I start cooking dinner. I have a glass of wine. Oh, no. At 6 o'clock, I have this a glass so of wine depressing. that lasts me till we sit down to dinner at 7.30. And the husband likes to watch various news things while I cook. We sit down and dine at 7.30. We need to switch. Okay. You need to come over, do childcare, and I'll go Well, I'd love to. I'd dinner love, for your husband. You know, I could take a few little humans. I, you know, I've okay. been waiting for some grandchildren. It should happen sometime. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just so depressed now. Time down for the Sorry, phone lines. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Hannah from Twin Falls, Idaho. How can we help you? Well, I have a bit of a Benedict conundrum. (laughs) I'm recently engaged, and over the years, my fiancé and I have kind of developed a tradition of Sunday brunch. He loves Egg Benedict. It's his favorite meal in the whole world. My problem is I hate it. So I always end up with extra hollandaise, and the whole process itself is kind of hard. I was hoping you guys maybe had some tips or tricks to make it easier um, and I also wanted to know how long I could keep hollandaise. Well, you, you can make them in blenders or use an immersion blender or instead of the traditional stovetop French method, right? Absolutely. And yeah. you can't keep it all that long. You can throw it into a 
thermos and it will stay warm for quite a while, but you don't want to use it the next day. So just make a small batch. But in terms of poaching the eggs, I learned this from a cute Australian chef I had on my show years ago. And what he would do is take a straight-sided skillet and fill it with water, three, four inches, and bring it up to a boil. And meanwhile, he would have broken the eggs into little, you know, ramekins. So he brings it up to a boil. He turns off the heat, dump in the eggs, you put on the lid, you leave it, takes three, four minutes till they solidify. And then you take them out with a slotted spoon and you can store them overnight. Put them in a container covered with water. Right, right, with a little bit of water, yeah. And then the next day, just bring up some water to, you know, a boil, turn it off and just dip them in till they're warm and then you're ready to go. Sarah, can I ask, did you say cute? He was so cute. <laughs> well, okay. Now this explains why she liked the method. I've tried every method because I I make poached eggs once a week. The best way to make them, it's metal. It has a a hooked top on it. It has two little containers for the eggs. You put half an inch of water in the pot. It clips onto the side of the pot. You break an egg into each one. You can put two sets of two in if you want and put the top on. I also spray it with nonstick spray. It's the simplest thing in the world. It comes out perfectly every time. You know, the classic You have to, you have to buy a gadget then. Uh, they cost five bucks. Or <laughs> Where do bucks. you buy them, Chris, and what are they called? Just look at an egg poacher. It's like 10 bucks, and it solves all your egg poaching Takes problems. Takes up more room in your cupboard. Well, you could call this cute guy over, and he could do it that way, too. No, what my method is like no extra pots or pans. But the overnight <laughs> thing is actually brilliant. Uh, yeah, do it yeah, the day before. That's a great technique. Thank you so. for that. Okay. All right. Well, all right, Hannah. All Hannah. right, well. I think between the hollandaise and the egg method, I, I, I can keep the tradition going. All right. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for calling, okay. and good right. luck. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Mike from Richmond, Virginia. How can we help you? So a little while ago, I was making the creamy mushroom soup out of the Food Lab cookbook. Mm-hmm. And I'm a baker, so I often have odds and ends of different loaves lying around. And I had some rye bread that was kind of starting to turn, and I figured, oh, I think I might be able to thicken this soup up with the rye bread instead of just putting flour in like the recipe calls. And it worked out extremely well. It tasted very good, except the color came out like wet concrete. Mm. It was incredibly unappealing to look at. Tasted great, but whenever I was getting leftovers out of the fridge, I had to consciously remind myself that this is actually food and it tastes good. (laughs) So my question was, is there anything I could have done during cooking it to change the color to be a little more palatable? Well, I'll take a totally different tack. I would cube the rye bread and toss it with some oil, olive oil and salt. Mm -hmm. And I would take a big skillet and for five or six, seven minutes, toast the bread in the skillet and just use that as a topping for the soup. So you get the flavor of the rye and they just thicken it with flour. You get the wonderful texture and they're just, the texture is fabulous. You could throw some herbs into salt, Mm -hmm. of course, and then you get the texture, you get the flavor of the bread and you don't muck up the color of the soup. That would be my quickie suggestion. I mean, Sarah. So what I would suggest um, in terms of making it look better, besides what Chris said that sounded yummy is just a really nice garnish, like a whole bunch of shallots or onions that you caramelize completely Mm. And then put those on top with some beautiful shredded fresh herbs. Because it's amazing. You put a bright garnish on it. You don't notice that it looks like cement otherwise. So I would, mm. you know, try to get creative in that department. But I like my idea better. I like your idea better. But he still has to thicken the soup. <laughs> or just eat by candlelight. 
Well, that's a good point, One too. One candle. Yeah. Not two. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But I think that's a great idea is using up. I mean, if you look at old cookbooks, there's so many recipes where stale bread is the first step because they had a lot of it. And they yeah. used it for, that's why they had breadcrumbs and they made puddings out of it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You put it in salads. Put it in, they put it in cakes. They do all sorts yeah. of things. So yeah. good for you for using it up instead of throwing it out. I think yes, that's great. Yes, absolutely. Great. All right, Mike. Mike, give it a shot. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to take your culinary calls. Give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jennifer Hansford. Jennifer, where are you calling from? I'm in Kansas City. And how can we help you today? I have a strange question, and I've been chasing the answer for quite some time. Um, my great-grandmother used to make a peach cobbler. She called it cobbler. I'm not sure what you would call it. But there was a layer in that dish that my sister and I have been struggling for years to figure out what it's made of or how she made it. It was amazing. And it was very firm, like firmer than a custard, but white. And she put it in the oven so it had the peaches on the bottom this layer, probably three quarters to an inch thick, and then some like oatmeal kind of crumbled on the top, and I cannot figure it out. Did the topping drip down among the peaches in the bottom as well, or was it just a separate layer on top? It was a separate layer on top. But for the most part, the white layer was pretty much white all the way through, and it tasted of peaches, but it was not, it was over the peaches. My first thought is, whatever it is, it has to be a very thick batter, you know, it has to be like a really more than a cake batter, right? Because otherwise it's just going to immediately go right down to the peaches and end up right. mixing with Right, and it doesn't them. even taste cakey. It's very similar to like a firm custard. Well, you know, there is blanc mange, which is um, actually it's originally an Arab dish, but Fanny Farmer made it hers. It's a cornstarch pudding. And I wonder if that's maybe with some flour in it to thicken it up. It is a very plain ends up sort of as a pudding layer, and that was very popular. And a lot of old cookbooks use blancmange. Maybe it's a that combination of peaches and blancmange. And you can put it in the oven, right? Yep. The only problem with a blancmange is a cornstarch thickened pudding. It needs to be at 185, and if it's too hot, it breaks down. And you know, It's a little tricky. So I, maybe it's just a flour-based pudding. It is a flour, essentially, a milk or whatever, with flavorings and beaten until fairly thick. Could you give us a little more hint about the texture? Yeah, it's not like a cake at all. It's uh. like a dense custard. You still cut through it with your spoon, and it was like pretty stark white. There are no eggs in it because it's all white, and it's flour, cornstarch. Right, and it that's holds its shape. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's really, actually, that sounds delicious. I have some old Fanny Farmer cookbooks from 1900 or so. I bet if I looked in there, there I might be. I bet you. I yeah. bet there's something, or one of those settlement cookbook, one of those books is probably a recipe. Anyway, fascinating. I think we need to go test this out. And I need a big bowl of it. Yes. Some, Jennifer, yes. thank you. Yeah. Um, I can start in some historical, you know, wormhole yes. <laughs> for, for this dessert. It sounds great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from Chef J.P. McMahon about the history and future of Irish cooking. That's coming up after the break.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Chef J.P. McMahon, who owns and operates three restaurants in Galway, Ireland. His new book is called The Irish Cookbook. J.P., welcome to Milk Street. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, Let's do a little history. Uh, One of the things you brought up in the book that was so interesting is that seafood, obviously, was important initially in Irish cooking. But in later centuries, it wasn't. And so why why was seafood sort of left off the menu for such a long time? I, I think one of the one of the primary reasons the f- the first kind of turning away from the sea is probably when we began to farm and there was a certain consistency about that. I also think people didn't have access to the sea in the way that we have now. So a lot of fishing would have been very coastal. I also think as well in the 19th and 20th centuries the attitude towards fish was a fish was seen as a, I suppose, as a, as a fasting food when you weren't eating meat. And it was, I suppose it was relegated to below meat. And even myself growing up, there wasn't too much emphasis put on fish in the way that the Spanish or the Italians or the French celebrate fish. And I think we've a, we have a very different attitude towards fish now in Ireland. Of course, it's still changing and it's, you will still meet so many people in, in Ireland that don't eat shellfish, don't eat oysters or mussels. And we, we produce so many of them. And, and that's something, I suppose, that I wanted to try and change with the book. So Gur cake, two layers of pastry filled with leftover cake. Could you tell me about that? Because that's not something I've ever heard about. Yeah, that I, and it's funny, I never liked it growing up. My father always ate it, and I was always looking at this kind of black cake in between two slices of pastry, wondering what it was, and it was very spiced. And um, then when I researched it a bit, I realized it was a kind of Dublin uh, phenomenon where bakers would use their leftover cakes and almost kind of make a new cake, so put it into a new mix and, and then put it between two sheets of, of pastry and bake it again. The word gur is purportedly from like gurrier, which is I suppose what my granny used to call, call us when we, were, when we were messing, if you were a kind of a young lads who were up to mischief or gurriers hmm. or urchins in the, in the street and that. And so this cake is it's very much associated with Dublin and it was a way of minimizing waste. We're, we're so conscious nowadays of food waste in the past, I suppose there was no such thing as food waste because you had to use up what you had because you actually didn't have enough food. And it's right. only now that we have too much food that we produce waste, whereas in the past, stuff got recycled. And even when you look at shepherd's pie or the cottage pie, a lot of that was produced the following day when you had stuff left over. And um, when you had your uh, your meat or that and you cooked it again in a gravy and then you topped it with something and baked it again in the oven, it was a way of getting more mileage out of the food that you had. Venison, the tenderloin, the backstrap is easy. Cook at high heat quickly. But you have a recipe for venison like here. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because venison's so lean. And so, so how, how do you deal with that? I would treat venison like I would treat lamb. Like you are going to cook it low and slow, but you're not going to cook it for as long 
as you would cook, say, a um, leg of beef or a, or a shoulder of pork. Uh, but it's again, it's something that with the leg of venison, you can cook that medium rare. And so having a, having a thermometer, I, I think, is the most, the most important thing. And, and it's not about knowing intuitively when something is ready. For me, it's always about putting it in, uh, checking the, the temperature with, the, with a probe and, and, and knowing at what point do I need to cook it to? Do I want to cook it rare, medium, or do I want to cook it well? Because there is a, a, there's even a different range of wells. And a lot, for a lot of people, when they think of well-done meat, they think of like carbonized, very right. dry meat. And I know plenty of people in Ireland that, that enjoy their meat like that. And then they kind of say, well, it needs more sauce. And they're going, well, it needs more sauce is moisture. And it's because you've removed the moisture from the, the cooking process. So it is, there's always that battle with them. Yep, same thing here, especially in New England. Um, every year we do an ox roast, which is just a heifer and... Uh, if you cook it rare or medium rare, nobody eats it. And it has to be no no hint of pink anywhere in the meat. I find turning down the lights and just serving it medium rare and just making <laughs> sure people can't see the color. Because I generally find probably about 70% of the people will, will if you blindfold them, they would admit to it being nicer, rare or medium rare than it would be well. But it's just, I think it's it's your eyes that are tricking you. And that's what you need to do. You don't need to blindfold everyone, turn down the lights, have a few candles, slice it, pour a bit of sauce over it and say, look, that yeah, we did cook it well. I just always just lie to uh, to my family. It's I just say it's well cooked. Even if it's rare, I say it's well. So then they just kind of feel uh, more at ease. Um, skillet carrots with butter and stock. That also caught my eye. It's just a really good basic way of thinking about cooking a vegetable. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things that when we think about cooking vegetables, we always think about dropping them in the largest amount of water and boiling them. And that's pretty much how I was reared. It was just like, boil your vegetables, and then everyone doesn't like them. And you're going, why doesn't anyone like the vegetables? Because you boil them in water and then serve them. And I think we need to give vegetables a little bit more love and possibly to treat them the way we treat meat. And when we, we cook meat, we pan fry it and we put it with butter and you baste it and you cook it slowly. And one of the ways that we do carrots in, in the restaurant is, is cooking them really slowly in butter, maybe a small bit of water, but like all of the nutrients and all of the flavor remains in that small amount of liquid. And so just trying to get people to appreciate. And it's something that's probably been sidelined in Irish cooking. Vegetables were the kind of additional optional thing and they were just kind of cooked in no particular way. And they take a long time to grow and there's a lot of vegetable growers that we work with that spend a long time picking different varieties and growing them for flavor. And you, you, you really got to put the maximum amount of love into them. And finally, one of my favorites, these are onions roasted whole in pork fat and thyme. I, I just really fell in love with that one. Yeah, we forget that pre-modernization or pre-industrialization, most things that were fried were fried in beef, pork or lamb fat. And it has an amazing flavor. And it's something that we've just forgotten about. We just we, we would never think of frying a vegetable now in beef fat or lamb fat or chicken fat. And what happens to the vegetable is, is you, you get this flavor from the fat in on top of the vegetable. And so I like to try and encourage people to really think about like the fat, because now we use a neutral oil that tastes of nothing, which again is, is, is fine for a whole lot of things. But using animal fat, it's a really nice thing to do. And I think roasting an onion whole and cooking it really slowly so that the sugars get released and it gets sweet and the bitterness goes away. It just takes a bit of time and giving yourself more time to cook things, I think is, I suppose, one of the aims of the book as well. So if you were to go back in time in Irish history, was there a time when you think the food would have been most extraordinary? 
oh, I suppose the, the romantic in me would say I want to go back to the very, very beginning, that kind of Mesolithic period where people have just arrived, there's loads of wild game, there's loads of wild plants, the things that I love about Irish food now. But I, like, I think any period in the first farmers as well, growing barley, bringing cows into the country, I, I think it would all predate the written word if, if I had to pick a time. But I suppose romantically, I think that's a, it's, a, it's a great time to think about because we can learn so much from that now when we think about the local food movement and trying to support ourselves as a country. But for me, taking an oyster out of the sea and putting a bit of seaweed on it and eating it is, for me, what encapsulates Irish food now, but it's also what encapsulated Irish food 10,000 years ago. Do you ever wonder whether society is headed in the direction you would like or whether you feel abandoned <laughs> by, by, by all of the trends in culture which are going away from the things you hold dear? Yeah, I think um, I think if I if I was more naive, I'd probably be happier because uh, I don't think it is going that way. I think there is a certain section of society that does want the local food movement. I think it's difficult with a growing population to see how we can all just grow food locally and be happy because we need more food all the time and then we rely on imports um, even the potato which is a good place to to end like that we Ireland is associated so much with the potato it's been in Ireland 300 years we don't even grow enough potatoes in Ireland anymore to feed ourselves like we I think we, we imported 72,000 tons last year hmm. um, and so it's kind of ironic that we're still associated with it because we don't we don't grow enough to feed ourselves anymore and that's for me that's a tragedy as well because there is no money in it because it's cheaper to get potatoes from southern parts of um, Europe or the, the Middle East than it is actually to grow a potato in Ireland. And that's why when you lose things, uh, particularly different varieties and different traditions about where potatoes would have grown and what varieties people would have grown. And there are some great contemporary potato growers in Ireland growing some really different varieties. And I think hopefully those people will, um, will shine a new light on, uh, on, on Irish food. JP, it's been a great pleasure having you on Mill Street. Thanks. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. That was JP McMahon, chef and author of The Irish Cookbook. It's time to head into the kitchen at Mill Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, crispy pasta with chickpeas, lemon, and parsley. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you've been wandering the world. You were in Puglia not too long ago. Yes. Uh, and you came across a recipe for crispy pasta. Let me just say, I'm not a big fan of crispy pasta. <laughs> I like my pasta. I don't even like it al dente. I like it cooked. Uh, but this one, you say, is a winner. This isn't just crispy pasta. This is pasta fried in olive oil. Mm. Now I have your attention. Mm. So... I found this restaurant in Lecce, which is, of course, in the heel of the Italian boot. And this woman brings me into the kitchen, and she starts cooking pasta, and she throws it in a vat of olive oil, like boiling <laughs> olive oil. And all of a sudden, it's bubbling, and it's fizzing, and it's sizzling. And she yanks it out and throws it on the counter. And then she proceeds with the recipe. And I couldn't imagine what she was going to do. I mean, to me, it looked like wonton strips. I assumed it was going to be a garnish that maybe you crush over the finished dish. 
but in fact it wasn't. Right, so this is a dish of, of texture and contrast. So you have two varieties of pasta. One of the pastas has been fried crisp in olive oil. The other has been boiled up, as you would expect, in water. Then they're combined, and they're combined with tender chickpeas. There's a lot of starch involved in all three of those ingredients, and when they combine, they create a really creamy sauce that bathes the whole thing. So is this pasta with sauce, or is this more of a soup? There's not a broth here, right? It is, well, it's kind of in the middle. It's pasta, crisp and tender, with chickpeas, and the combination of the starchy waters from all of that create their own sauce, of course, adding a little bit of olive oil. So the fried pasta is a little bit like chicharrones in Mexico. Yes. It's there for the crispiness. Exactly. Well, you're getting some savoriness to it, some saltiness to it, because you're frying it in the olive oil, and, and then you're combining that with traditionally cooked boiled pasta, and then again, you're combining that with the chickpeas. We added a little bit of lemon juice and parsley to brighten it up, get, add some freshness to it in our version, but the overall effect is creamy, rich texture. One question. A vat of boiling oil yeah. is not something we're going to do at home. So how did you, how did you uh, substitute we, for that? We were able to do it in just a shallow pan with just a little bit of oil. We did not need the vat that uh, my cook needed. <laughs> so maybe you've changed your mind. You went to Puglia, came back with a crispy pasta with chickpeas, lemon, and parsley. But it also has some fully cooked pasta, too. It does indeed. In a nod to my palate. <laughs> Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You can find this recipe and all our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Dan Pashman about the ideal ice cube. We'll be right back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Laura. Hi, Laura. Where are you calling from? Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Okie doke. Uh, how can we help you today? My relationship with food has become pretty complicated. I used to be omnivorous, but now I can't eat peppers or dairy. I've uh, worked my way around dairy. There's lots of vegan stuff going around, so that's fine. But peppers are a catastrophe, including jalapenos, sriracha, paprika, any of their cousins. Oh, no. Yeah, well, you know, it could be much worse. But I'm looking for something to spice up a chili or a tomato sauce so my children will continue to eat with me. I understand there's some Indian spices that work and are not in that Capacin family, but I haven't really been able to do a lot of research on it with any confidence. I mean, there's other things that are spicy which would not affect you. Thinking about what would go nice in chili, obviously garlic, but you probably already got that in there. Fresh horseradish, peppercorns. Even though chilies are spicy, peppercorns are a different kind of spicy, and that would be helpful there. Yep. Another thing that's enormously spicy is Coleman's mustard, that dry mustard they use. Have you ever had that? No. Sometimes it's mixed with water, and it's a paste, and you might find it in a Chinese restaurant. It's incendiarily hot, and it's really <laughs> yummy. Uh, there's also wasabi, although I don't think wasabi belongs in a chili. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? No. I think peppercorns. I, I would do two things. I would come up with a spice blend. A lot of people in the world households have their own family blend. Cumin works well in chili. Coriander, ginger. There's lots of kinds of peppercorns other than just black pepper. The warm spices, cinnamon, cloves, cardamom. So I, I would come up with a spice blend that isn't going to bother you and use that as sort of an all-purpose blend in your cooking. And that's what a lot of okay. people do. The second thing I would do is do a seasoned salt. I'd make your own salt and throw in some of those spices. You could even throw in some of the dry mustard powder if you wanted. So a seasoned salt and a spice blend. And those two things are just used in a lot of your recipes, not just chili. Stews, soups, etc. It's really an easy way to do it. You might actually have more than one spice blend. You could also buy a sitar, which is a spice, you know, ras alanut. There's a lot of berbera. There's some things out there, although I think that does include chilies, unfortunately. Yeah, it might. Spice blends is really the way to go in seasoned salts. It would really make your cooking better, I think. Thank you for that, because the whole reason to do it at home is that the chili relatives are hidden in that little word spices and ingredients list if right. you buy hummus in the market and right. stuff like that. So you got to be careful. Very vigilant, yeah. Do check out the Coleman's mustard. That's it's, a good idea. It's I, fun. 
I will. I know a lot of mustard has, when you read the ingredients list, it has peppers, so you have to do that, but you're just talking about dry mustard. It's a pure dry, but not any dry mustard, not a regular dry mustard, Coleman's. I'd also go to a place like Penzi's, you know, Spices, and they carry lots of different peppercorns. Pepper obviously has heat, but they're white peppercorns. One of my editors was in Cambodia recently, and they're sort of long peppercorns. There's a lot of different flavors to them, and that would give you heat and flavor, so I would look at those too. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yep. All right. Thanks, Laura. Okay, Uh, Laura. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. To chat with Sarah and me on air, just call 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Nancy from San Diego. How can we help you today? Hi, well, I'm calling because my uh, family likes to make these rolls that are called orange bow rolls, and they're an enriched dough. They're made with um, milk and eggs and butter. They have to rise the first time, and then you punch them down and let them rise again, and then you roll them out, and then they have to rise again. And my sister and I always disagree about how long you can leave an enriched dough out and let it rise without it spoiling. So that's really my question is, when you're approaching the two-hour window of rising time, are you ever in jeopardy of having it spoil? Well, I know that the government says, and it's an easy number to remember, that two hours is sort of the danger zone for anything left at room temperature. But that's sort of a place to start. It's not a hard and fast rule. And I know that a lot of us stretch the truth. I mean, when you think about it, all sorts of people should die at Thanksgiving. They have their meal at 2 or 4, and then it stays there till you know, 10 o'clock at night on the counter. And then they go back and revisit it. They don't wrap it up and put it away. They go back and have seconds, hours later. You know, if you said six hours, you know, maybe I'd feel differently. But two hours, I think you're fine. You know, if you're really concerned, I mean, the biggest issue there would be the eggs. And so if you wanted to, you could use pasteurized eggs. That might help a little bit. But might I interject that you're then going to put this in a 400-degree oven? So, that's true. So, I mean, th- th- this is a difference between leaving something out that's been cooked and eating it six hours later. Good where point. If there's bacteria, it doubles every 20 minutes, which gets you into big trouble pretty quickly. But you're going to throw this in the oven. So if there's right. bacteria growing, it's going to get killed. And most of the time, that's fine. Secondly, every bakery in the world is letting their yeah, enriched bread absolutely. rise for hours. So right. I, I would say the odds of this being problematic... Are very slim. Well, I have to call my lawyer now. But um, yeah, <laughs> I, I would not be worrying about this because you're going to put it in a hot oven, so that's going to take care right. of the problem. I mean, like, the, the classic case is like potato salad, right? It's the potatoes, right. actually. It's not the mayonnaise. It's not the mayonnaise because mayonnaise yeah. has tons... Oh, really? It, industrial and, mayonnaise has tons of, I mean, supermarket... And that sits out for has hours. tons of additives right. in it. So it, that sits out for hours, but you're not throwing that in an oven before you eat it. Right. So it's the oven that's right. going to really be the thing that solves right. the problem here, yeah. Okay. I grew up in a household where the butter was kept on the counter at room sure. temperature Absolutely. all the time. Uh-huh. And the French keep their eggs out, not that I would, but, you know. We used to have a very large family. Now it's small, but maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's something to do with the butter. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I don't think this is I wouldn't worry, yeah. no. Well, good. I'll stop worrying. Yeah. Okay. And just enjoy the okay. rolls. All right, Nancy. We will. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. 
Hi, my name is Sharon, and here's my tip. To make your raw celery last longer in the refrigerator, wrap it in aluminum foil before storing it. I've found that it lasts up to two to three weeks longer. Thanks. Bye. If you'd like to share your own culinary tip or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please visit 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you doing? I'm ready for you to rock my world as usual. Well, that was the perfect segue because we're talking today about rocks, by which I mean ice cubes. Uh, well, there's a lot to say about ice cubes, actually. I knew you were the guy to have yeah. this conversation with. I, I think from a molecular point of view, it's extremely complex. I love that. So this is going to be a very interesting segment. So when you, let's start off just like a straight drink. You're just having straight liquor in a glass. Right. Do you like it with ice sometimes? And if so, what type of ice? Other than unblended scotch, where unless you drink it neat, they'll throw you out of the bar. I like lots of ice, and I don't like little tiny ice cubes because they melt too fast. I don't like the one huge ice cube because it never melts. So I like fairly large cubes in five or six of them. So it melts slowly. And I also shake, even in old-fashioned, I shake all of my drinks before I serve them. I like them really cold, and I don't want them to melt too fast. I, it, you know, there's a great uh, the Savoy cocktail book from 1925. The guy at the American bar said, drink a cocktail cold and drink it fast. So that's my that's my rule. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you 100%. And don't let those old timers at the at the pub stop you from drinking your scotch the way you want it, Chris. Aren't, aren't you – don't we reach a certain age and we don't care what anyone else thinks? Well, that's true. But there was a British pub in Manchester, Vermont, and I once ordered uh, Glendronic on the rocks. And he looked at me. He said, you can either leave now <laughs> – or I'll serve it neat. Which would you prefer? So ever since that time, and my confidence was deeply shaken. Right. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's, that seems uh, a bit lacking in hospitality. But I am here to absolve you of that moment, Chris, and to tell you that it's okay to put ice whenever you want it. But, I, but I, as I expected, Chris, you are someone who puts a lot of thought into the size and shape yes. and really surface area to volume ratio is what we're talking about yes. when we're talking about ice. When I learned that when Mrs. Daner taught me that term in AP bio in junior year of high school, I thought I would never use it in life. And in food, it turns out to be one of the most important concepts there is, hmm. right? Like the ratio between the surface area, the, the area on the outside of any food or ice in relation to the volume, how much stuff it takes to fill it up. So the, the lowest surface area to volume ratio shape is a sphere. So uh, uh, one sphere, a ball of ice, actually has the least amount of surface area exposed to the surrounding liquid in relation to really? interior ice. Yes. But I, I don't like the giant ball of ice no. because I feel like it rolls down the inside of the glass. When you tip the glass back, the ball rolls and hits you in the face. Yeah. Uh, and then, like then we do sometimes see the cube, like the one giant cube, like, sort of like a Rubik's those. cube. And I agree that that one melts too slowly and also sometimes hits me in the face. Yeah, and there's also, I, I think there is something magical about a number of cubes, you know, five or six, in a glass. And every time you drink it, they move slightly. And there is a noise to that and a pleasure, the liquid in those cubes, 
It's just one of those little things, I think, that's part of enjoying a cocktail. I think that is so right, Chris. We are really on the same page today. Uh, how rare. Like, it, it, the, the sound of the ice, there's yes. a tactile pleasure yes. of holding the glass and swirling it and feeling yes. the clinks on your fingertips. Yep. Um, it's so much a part of a cocktail, and the, the one giant cube robs us of that part of the experience. Now, I do if to get to the last part, though, uh, my father-in-law, who also enjoys an old-fashioned, my favorite drink, he will take him an hour to finish his drink. And, you know, halfway into this process, half the ice is melted, and now he has a watered-down cocktail. I, I think the max amount of time to drink a cocktail has to be well under 10 minutes because the nature of the cocktail changes radically pretty quickly once everything starts to melt. And, and once you have all that water in the cocktail, you've lost the perfect balance, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I would probably put myself somewhere between you and your father-in-law. I mean, you and I seem to agree that our ideal is to have several mid-size ice cubes, maybe call them one-inch-on-each-face yeah. cubes. I, to me, some watering down is nice because, you know, when I drink a cocktail, especially when it's my first cocktail of the day— I kind of want the first couple sips to be strong, yeah. full-flavored, and also I want to feel the effects of the alcohol quickly. But then I kind of like – I hit the the buzz level and the flavor sensation level that I want to be at, and then I want to kind of just ride that plateau. And then it's modest sipping for a little while to kind of just maintain – that's the hallmark of good buzz management is that you are going to get to the point that you feel good at and then stay there without going higher or lower. No, we, we, we were totally simpatico until about a minute ago. Um, <laughs> here's why you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong because okay, okay. if you care about making a cocktail, that first sip has to be perfect. So from that moment on, it's going to become less and less perfect. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're shaking it, you know, you're already watering it down a little yeah. bit. But I agree with you. I love a shake and drink. I also love the froth that it creates. But but I I do understand the point about the the even level buzz. But I I just think every sip of a good cocktail should be as perfect as possible. I, I don't want to start to the hot side of perfect and end up on the low side by the time you're done. That's all. Right. So we can disagree on yeah. that. We agree on the ideal size, the ideal surface area to volume ratio of ice cubes for cocktails, and I think for a lot of drinks, frankly. But I'm curious, Chris, is there ever a situation, any kind of beverage, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, where you like a lot of very small ice cubes, like crushed ice? Um, yeah, mint julep. I think it must have six ounces of bourbon in it, but that would right. be my one exception problem. And also, I feel like if maybe if it's a very hot day. Yes. I got a question for you. Yes. Do you put a soggy napkin around the bottom of your cocktail glass as you walk around and sip? No. Okay. I, 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 don't, I, don't want to, I don't like a, the napkin. Okay. Give me a real coaster, great, but otherwise, okay. um, no, the napkin just turns to shreds. I usually remove it right away. Well, it's just a, you know, it's a cultural thing. I just want to know which camp you were in. That's all. <laughs> This is old, old line New England cocktail hour technique. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so you obviously are not part of that, which is good. That's a good thing. So which one are you? Oh, I, I don't put napkins around it, no. I, I drink my cocktail so fast I don't need to. Right. Wait, so there are people in New England who, like, if they had a cocktail and they were walking around, they would, like, take a napkin and yeah. put it underneath the they glass that they are holding They put a, a cocktail napkin up? underneath their old-fashioned glass and they quote As if, unquote, like, their hand needs a coaster so it doesn't leave a ring on it? Well, they, they're nursing their cocktail. I see. Now, now, this reminds me of my great-aunt Dorothy, who used to come to our family gatherings and bring her own grapefruit juice. Uh, and it turns out <laughs> it was mostly gin, but— um, and, <laughs> 
she nursed her grapefruit juice for a couple hours and she had a cocktail right, right. napkin underneath like, it. Yeah. Man, Aunt Dorothy just loves that grapefruit juice. She did. She? My, my mother took me aside years later and explained to me what was actually going on. Well, um, actually, this time we, we pretty much agreed on the cocktail. Yeah, this was nice. You're a little slower at, at the back end of the cocktail experience, but uh, I think we're agreed on the ice cubes. Dan Pashman, ice cubes and cocktails. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Happy drinking. You too. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. Dan Pashman points out that ice cubes come in many shapes, and from a molecular point of view, there are at least 18 different types. When ice is subjected to high pressure, the arrangement of the molecules changes, producing different properties. Solid water, otherwise known as amorphous water, is the most common variety found in outer space. There is also hyper-quenched glassy water, square ice, tetragonal ice, and rhombohedral ice. At extreme temperatures, scientists even predict that ice becomes a metal. So the next time you order a cocktail on ice, you might want to think about it. It's complicated. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, recipes that will change the way you cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.